What is up, guys? Can you hear me, Creston? Yeah, I'm here, man. Like always, my name is KJ, short for Khalil Jones, and this is Why Theology Today. I got my very own pastor back with me again, Pastor Creston Thomas, man. What's up, man? What's up? What's up? <laughs> you know, you guys know we are located in Palmdale, Arkansas. Many people call him the prophet, the apostle, and evangelist, so he's all above, y'all. <laughs> I, I, only time I heard that name, somebody called me that was from KJ himself. Um, <laughs> KJ, the only one called me that. So uh, you guys don't listen to this. <laughs> Creston told me he uh, performing miracles and everything, y'all, and God still talked to him. And so that's why I got him on this episode, so he can interpret the book. Because, you know, guys, this is a very difficult book. After about chapter five, I'm going to need Chris to help me out. So we're going to be diving into that. Uh, last week, we were talking about, I think, you know, we started off with verses one through three. And then we did verses four through eight. Now today, we're going to try to tackle this as much as we can and see if we want to do like verses nine to the end or kind of where we want to go at. But then before we do that, um, what were some things kind of discussed last that you kind of enjoyed talking about, man, that you want to kind of bring, bring back up today? Man, it, it was so much that we kind of unpacked there, man, just knowing um, that Jesus is, is reigning right now. Um, he's reigning supreme right now, and he's coming back to reign. Um and and also he was like he was reigning with them while like he walked with them, uh, even at his incarnation on earth. And so, um, you know, it was just encouraging to see that man he's reigning, and that all kings. And I think he talks about it in verse five that all kings are all kings is going to bow to him, and that no matter what suffering, or no matter what you're going through in the Asia Minor, or or even going through with the the persecution from the the the, uh, the Jewish leaders is that Jesus reigns, not them. He reigns, and I think that relates to us today too. Regardless of who's the president, governor, regardless of who reigning in the world, uh, what government system, that at the end of the day, though, is that they think they are truly reigning, but Jesus Christ reigns supreme over all of them, and that He has secured us by His blood. I think in verse five, He freed us from our sins, that He keeps us. And that we're going to reign with him because he brings us into this new kingdom with us. And he makes us priests with him. So he gives us affectionate language for those who are suffering. Let them know that the true joy they have in Christ. And today we're going to be kind of continuing um, just as just as it is. You know, what does Jesus want John to write to these churches? You guys remember the context. The context is key. Context, context, context. Who in the world is John writing to? He's writing to the seven churches. Um, you guys know last week I butchered it, but I got to remember right a little bit. We got the Church of Sardis, Church of Philadelphia, Church of Ephesus, Church of Smyrna, Church of uh, Thyatira. Is it with, with a T? What's the one with a T? Thyatira. Thyatira, and they got the one with the P. Pergamon. Yeah, you got Philadelphia and Pergamon. Yeah. Yes, and we also got Laodicea, and so that's the famous one everybody knows. You know, you look warm, and so we're dealing with that in a little bit, but um. Before we do, uh, you want to read the text for us, man? Yeah, yeah. I just read verse nine, and and we just go from there. Um, before we get into the, I think you can start to get into a lot of the uh, the vision um, here shortly. But uh, I think we can just do verse nine, um, and probably you can read verse ten. We we'll do ver- let's do nine and ten, mm-hmm. and uh, then we get into the vision a little bit later. Um, and it says, "I, John, your brother and partner in tribu- in the tribulation, in the kingdom, in the patient." endurance that are in Jesus was in the island of called Patmos 
on the account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Hello? Yeah, yeah. I just finished verse 10. Okay. All right. And so when we come back, we'll be dealing with verse 9 through 10. And um, depending on how much time we deal 9, 10, we'll kind of go through the rest. There's so much interesting stuff that I want to talk about. I'm sure Creston probably wants to talk about as well, especially that Lord's Day and the spirit on the Lord's Day. When we come back, we're dealing with those, though. Is I, John, your brother and fellow participant in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance in Jesus was on the island called Patmos. And we got a lot of different things going on right there. We're going to start first. I, John. <laughs> yeah, that's just right into it. I, John. Uh, again, we saw this name, John, earlier um, um, up in, I think, verse, what, verse five, I believe, um, or verse four, I believe. Um, he used the word uh, John to the seven churches. But now it says, I, John, now you're seeing that um, uh, now John is actually in the sense of kind identifying of making himself. kind of personal, identifying himself right now in this. Um, he uses that first person pronoun, I, uh, letting him know that uh, now this is John writing. And even though John is writing this, he's still inspired by the Holy Spirit. So he's writing this down, but the Spirit of God is still guiding him to write this, uh, write this uh down what he's writing down now to his brothers. Hmm. All right. And then the next part, it says, your brother, a fellow participant in tribulation and kingdom. So let's just start right there. And fellow participant in tribulation and kingdom. And I may actually back up a little bit. It says, I, John, your brother. Remember, the Bible is written to believers. We're not saying that unbelievers cannot come to faith by hearing the Bible being preached. But primarily, it was intended for believers to grow and understand who God is. But look at look what John says there. It says, fellow participant in tribulation. Let's start right there real quick. Yeah, I think some uh, translations say uh, taker or in tribulation or here we I'm using NASB and it says participant. Yeah, um, even in that verse, your brother in the past, you know, we know John is always connected with James. You know, John and James and Zebedee. Um, but now his brother is not in the sense of just physical anymore now. Even though his, John, his, his other brother, James, is also is a brother in Christ with him. But now he's talking about you're a brother to the churches, um, these, these other believers. So that, that's amazing, though, is that now he uses the same word brother again. At first we heard about his brother, I think it was in Matthew 14. That's a, his brother. Um, mm-hmm. Is it Andrew and his brother? Um, oh, you're talking about with Peter. But also it talks about, like, say, James and John, they brothers. But um, but now we're referring to now is that those who have been set apart in Christ, they're, they're his brothers as well. And so anybody that's a Christian that I believe in Christ, we're all our brothers in Christ. We are a part of this family. And this is not in the sense of excluding women. Uh, women in this society would be considered also a part of this as a sister. But they use the language brother. And referring to women and everybody as a part of this, that he's our brother that's going through, you know, that's partnering in the tribulation. And so, so yes, yeah, so that's what he's getting at is that the brothers that he have that he know us is part of this Christian church, not because of Judaism, because of their redemption they have in Christ Jesus. 
we can talk a little bit about that as well because um I think when I was preaching through Ephesians too, um it's the same um I guess country like Asia Minor today it's like modern day Turkey, right? Yeah, yeah, it's in the area. It's it's more than that, but it is some Turkey, yeah. yes. And so when you think about that, it's the audience over there is primarily Gentiles, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so let's take a little bit farther. Like if John is a Jew and he's writing to like almost people who are made up, the church consisting of uh, Gentiles, there is no longer a division between Jew and Gentile. And Paul has been doing that all throughout the Gospels. There is neither Jew nor Greek, for you are all one in Christ. You believe in Abraham, uh, Abraham's God, you are one in Christ. And so now we're all spiritual Jews. So you see that family connection there, that language that he's using. I mean, Jesus also uses that as well, but you know, you kind of get what I'm saying. But look, it doesn't stop there. We see that there's neither Jew nor Greek, but also uh, both Jew and Greek uh, or Jew and Gentile or uh, who those are in Christ, of course, are fellow participants in tribulation. John is saying, I'm in tribulation with you guys as well, because the context, Domitian was persecuting the church severely bad. Yeah, exactly, man. Um, and this uh, partner, um, we know as um, this partner or as a participant in, um, I think in NASB, what, what do you have in the NASB? If you, if you have participant. To? Yeah, participant. And um, so I think the, um, um, I think companion, I think the King James used the word companion um, in this type of, um, this tribulation. Um, this tribulation is, is dealing with, um, like trouble or distress. Um, mm. So uh, this word tribulation, I found. I think I mentioned. I mentioned um, a few moments ago. This word tribulation, I think, is used um, about five times in a way throughout Revelation. Um, but in particular, we see it used here, and also we're going to see it again in verse nine. Uh, verse, I mean, chapter two, verse nine, and chapter two, verse ten, talking about the tribulation. It's the same word. It's the same tribulation. Even even in I think in all of the discourse, I think I don't know which which version is it. They just use the word tribulation as well. A lot of them don't have the word great tribulation in them. And so um so sometimes I think the writer of the gospel gospel they might heighten it up. So they don't use the word great tribulation every single time. But it's talking about the same tribulation. Even in I think um, I have to compare which um, which gospel it was. I'm not sure if it's Mark or Matthew. One of them just used the word tribulation. And so this tribulation he's going through uh, that, that John referring to, um, it's a lot of trouble. It's a lot of distress that is happening uh, right here. Great conflict is happening here in this day uh, with John. And so uh, John is understanding that, that what is tribulation, but also he's a partner in this. Why is he saying partner? Because he know they're going through it. They're going through the tribulation as well. He know they're suffering. And that's why he's writing to them to encourage them to let them know that he's suffering with them, no matter what they're going through, he's going through it as well with them. And also we know it's the ultimate one that went through tribulation. We'll talk about this here shortly. Um, it's Jesus Christ. Um, he went through tribulation. And so the DNA of the Christian believer is that we all go through tribulation. There's nowhere around suffering as a Christian life. Nowhere around it. Let's look at the next part is verse says participant in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance in Jesus. Now the word kingdom, as you guys know, um, me and Chris may differ on this, but we both are in agreement that right now there is a kingdom amidst us right now. John the Baptist says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. 
you could reach out and grab it. And so there's some sort of spiritual aspect of this kingdom of God that's already missed in the midst of us. I think Colossians says that um, when we repented, we were uh, transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God. And so there's some sort of spiritual aspect of this kingdom. I think it's also like Luke 18 or 19. Um, the Pharisees were demanding a sign for the kingdom. And Jesus says the kingdom of God cannot be observed by signs and wonders. But he's talking about the spiritual aspect of the kingdom. And so here, what do you kind of think John is saying here when he says the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance in Jesus? Yeah, um, man, it's amazing. They said in the kingdom, this kingdom, again, to make up a kingdom, you need three things to make a kingdom up. You're going you're gonna to need a people, you're going to need a king, and you're going to need a land. Earlier, we talked about how Jesus, you know, we talked about the, how God said, hey, who is and was to come. So God is, and he is reigning. He is the king. And it talks about, we talked about too, about how he, he's a ruler of all kings. So, so it already lets us know that, that Jesus is reigning right now. And he's writing to a people that he has purchased for himself by his blood. And so those people that he purchased are the people that are in his kingdom. But also those same people are the priests in the kingdom. But also it's a land, it's heaven as well. So this kingdom right here, um, yeah, it, John says we are partaker in this tribulation. So John is experiencing the same in the sense of suffering that the other brothers are are experiencing. And also, like you just mentioned, though, in the kingdom, the already but not yet kingdom, is that this is the picture of that we are in the kingdom now, but it's still more to come within the kingdom. So it's the already but not yet that we don't have our physical, earthly, uh, heavenly bodies yet. So we are part of this new kingdom. But the two kingdom has haven't brought in, brought into total fruition yet, so we're waiting on this two kingdom to be real, fully realized. Hmm. Uh, you mentioned something earlier as well before you got cut out about a heavenly uh, land or something like that as well. Yeah, yeah. How how a kingdom makes up a three, um, a king, a people, and a land, and so we have our king, just Jesus, and it's, Jesus is he's talking about he. The king, he the king over all kings that we find out who we talked about that earlier in the text. Um, but not only he's the king, but he has separated people for himself, a priest of believers for himself that are part of this kingdom with him. But also he comes in is that he let us know right here is a kingdom, it's a land. It's a heavenly land. So this is a new kingdom. But in this kingdom, we see that, is that the, the, the kingdom that does not fully realize yet, it is tribulation that happens within this kingdom right now. We go through suffering, so we can be in the kingdom and still go through suffering trials. That doesn't mean that Jesus is not reigning. So he's still reigning in the midst of trials within this earthly kingdom that is happening. And also, we're also inside this spiritual kingdom, but the spiritual kingdom, like I said, is not fully realized at this moment. I know some people within like the historic pre-mill camp, they would say, I think I'm as well. We always say that like when Christ came the first time, it was inaugurate this kingdom. When he returns again, it'd be like to consummate the kingdom, to bring yeah. the kind of what you said to his fruition. Yeah. So, and, and then if I, I, oh, sorry, I'm sorry. I talked about. I was going to get into the, the patient endurance. Even though we, you know, in the kingdom, uh, this patient, uh, this, this tribulation, but it says right here in the patient endurance that are in Jesus, that um, patience is needed in the in the life of a Christian. Through trials is happening, even though we are in an earthly kingdom, God brings into a new kingdom, we're part of a new 
um, patience is needed within that new kingdom. It's truly patience is going to need it, but it's an endurance. Uh, ends it off said that are in Jesus. Um, it's no way that we can endure or get through tribulation outside of Jesus. I mean, think about the P and the tulip, perseverance of the saints. Not only are we talking about like, you know, saints persevering in Christ. I mean, not losing their salvation, but like in the midst of tribulation, like these saints will not waver and fade from their love in Christ. And we'll talk about that in a little bit in the next chapter, how uh, one of the churches, Christ said, you've forgotten your first love. But for those who are truly in Christ, even though they may sin, they may never truly fall away from uh, Christ. And so here, John is, you know, the context, again, that these churches, these Christians experience severe and tremendous persecution. Um, he's saying that not only are they doing that, but he as well, that we are experiencing persecution, but Christ is reigning and we will persevere. Amen. And you will see the same thing throughout the book. To the, I think Jesus says this, but the one who conquers at the end, but the one who conquers at the end, you'll see that all throughout the letters to the churches. Kind of Jesus reminded them that, like, ultimately, like, you will conquer to the end. You will persevere. And so it's kind of uh, encouragement. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. Now, let's look at this next part. It says, and Jesus was on an island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. If you guys remember in the first episode of the overview, I talked about why John was on this island. You guys remember um, John, all the apostles now in this time period are dead. It's crazy, right? Every single one, including Paul and Peter, they all died. Peter was crucified. Paul got his head cut off. Other ones were thrown off um, temples and just crazy. But during this time period, Christians were also being killed. And so John was preaching the gospel because, but notice this, even when it's, a, I guess, a crime to be killed for sharing the gospel, notice how John is still preaching the gospel. Just a quick application. But anyway, John was preaching the gospel and he was arrested, I guess you would say, and they uh, apprehended him and he was fixing to get killed. And they placed him without a boiling pot. And while he was in his pot, he was still preaching Jesus as Lord. Imagine that. Now, I take showers and my showers be hot. If I put the water all well hot, <laughs> you'll hear me screaming. But I'm talking about water that's boiling. And this man is still preaching Jesus as Lord. But notice, like, it, it shouldn't take, um, I mean, it's nothing special in John outside of the Holy Spirit. So we can do the same thing. We have that boldness about us as well. We are a kingdom. We are a priest, like John says. We can endure in persecution. And John was reminding us that we can persevere as well, even in the midst of tribulation. Yeah. Um, and going back to the Patmos, Patmos is actually just on a mount. You know, earlier when we talked about it's going to be seven churches that are going to make a circle. Well, the island of Patmos, this is why it makes so much sense why he's writing this letter to these seven churches. Because think about it. Look how far, look how close it is to Patmos from Ephesus. It's only about, what, 50 miles from the church of Ephesus. And these churches are, in a sense, of very near to each other. There's seven churches that make up a circle in Asia Minor. So uh, John is going through this. He's only about 50 miles from these churches. He's right down the road from these churches. So he he know what they're going through, and they know what he's going through. And he, so, he, so this makes sense, though. He's writing his letter to them that are very close to him because he might have got arrested while he was with them. We don't know why he got arrested. Where, I mean, where he was at. And, uh, but you see that he was exiled to the island of Patmos. And Patmos only 50 miles away from there. It could make sense that he probably was ministering in the Asia Minor for him to actually be arrested 
we know earlier he was in Jerusalem, but now could he have been in this area? Now he's writing back to the same people that know what he's going through. He's writing a letter to encourage them because they know he's suffering and, and for him knowing that they are suffering. So it makes so much sense why he'll write the letter to the seven churches right here in particular, rather than writing to the other churches that are in Corinth and Macedonia, which are not too far away. It makes so much sense why they write these things because they probably know exactly how he got arrested and everything else. So this book makes it, it makes it very personable by only being 50 miles away from the, um, from the Ephesus, the island of Patmos. I want to highlight something too, because we talk about this in our series in Acts, but like when you think about this, it seems as though like the Christian people have always been persecuted, but like, think about this. Jesus was killed. The um, the Jews in that time period thought that was it. They killed they killed the Messiah. They killed Jesus. We don't have to worry about Christianity no more. But when you look at history, you find out Christianity even spread even more after the death of Jesus. And so after Jesus died, he had two apostles. They killed all of them except John. And you would think if they killed apostles, that would end Christianity. But it seems as though like during severe persecution or severe trials and suffering, it seems as though Christianity spreads even more. It's like God or Jesus is like, he's still here right now. You kill one of them, they keep rising back up over and over and over, showing again what John is talking about. Jesus is sovereign. He's Alpha and Omega. How can you stop this God who was and who is to come, right? Hey, man, man, it's just like I say, it's just so encouraging that regardless of the tribulation that they're going through, um, even though they're part of this earthly kingdom right now, they are to wait patiently in endurance and in Christ Jesus, um, regardless of where you're at. And so I think he's kind of letting them see this. And um, this is a real area. So this book is he given us real geographical areas. So this is not a, you know, a made up book and everything that like these places didn't exist. Patmos still exists. I think at the time it was a, a hub. I think the Roman army would use this place to, for settlement and things of that. And they would do things there in Patmos. So it's a very common, very popular place at the time in the first century. They would knew about this place. Uh, they would knew about Patmos. And uh, I knew that it would have been a place, like I say, for Christians to be exiled to um, in this first century. Now, probably big start talking about some Reformed theology stuff, but let's look at verse 10. It says, I was, I was in the spirit on Lord's day and heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. So let's talk about in the spirit on the Lord's day. So, First question I'll ask is, what does it mean to be in the spirit, Kristen? Yeah, uh, we see this language, um, this language of in the spirit. I think it mentioned this in like John 4, 23 or 24. Uh, I think it talks about in the spirit. Uh, for those who are believers, uh, we have the indwelling, the spirit dwells in us. In the Old Testament, the spirit would be in the believer, I mean, be in the believers, but it didn't dwell until Jesus actually finally sent the actual Holy Spirit to truly dwell in us forevermore. So in the spirit, that's something that's given to the believers. Um, there's no way to be a believer and not have the spirit dwell in them. So John is letting us know is that, that hey, the spirit, he said, I was in the spirit. Um, um, this spirit, he, he pretty much, I'm, you know, you think about it like, hey, he is always in the spirit. So why, why, why would he use a word, I was in the spirit? Um, I think he's using this, this word that's in the spirit, this phrase to get at is that this is the time that he's worshiping. 
he's 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 worshiping. This is Dami the honor. This is a day of rest. He's getting ready for the rest. And you look and you look more than that verse. He said on the Lord's day. And so we always see that anytime the gathering of the saints on Sunday or on the Lord's day, they're always considered to be in the spirit. Um, why make a lot of sense. Go ahead, sir. That makes a lot of sense. First time I actually seen that right there, that connection. I knew like the Lord's that part, but like how you just parallel that together. Cause I mean, that's what exactly what uh, Jesus said in John 4 to the, the woman, the Samaritan woman, about we don't yeah. we worship the spirit and truth. That's kind of cool yeah. to see that. Yeah. So now he's using this term like the spirit God dwell with his belief. Because one thing about the worship on a Sunday, on the Lord's Day, you're preaching his word, you're singing the word, you're fellowshipping the word. The whole Lord's Day is centered around the Spirit of God reigning supreme in the worship. We don't get that outside of the Lord's Day. I mean, we all are, you know, we're using different things. We do different things throughout the week. Uh, but gathering the Spirit of God is all throughout the Word. The Spirit of God uh, guides the worship. The whole worship is submitted to the Spirit of God. And so he uses right here, let us know the particular the particular reference of the Lord's Day, the, 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 the particularity of the Lord's Day. Compared to any other day of the week, on the Lord's Day, that's when everybody, as believers within the church, they come together and His Word is exalted and His song, and it's also a day we celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ and His uh, uh, death, the burial, and resurrection of Christ. And so John is actually getting on the new Christian Sabbath. He's getting hmm. on the new Christian Sabbath. This eighth day, Augustine was saying, the eighth day of the week. That's what he's actually hitting upon. And now we're going to get in some trady water, man. But uh, let's kind of talk about that real quick. So if you look in the Old Testament, you kind of know um, six days of creation. On the seventh, seventh day, the Lord rested. We go um, all throughout the book of Genesis. And it seems like when you get to Exodus chapter 20, about, you know, six days, you should honor the Lord. But on the seventh day, you should rest. But like it seems as though like if you look in all of uh, Genesis, it seems like they all had some sort of uh, understanding of what the Sabbath day was. And many Jews would have told you the Sabbath day was on Saturday. When we get to the New Testament, and especially the book of Hebrews, I think it's probably probably Paul is the author of Hebrews, but we're not kind of unsure. But I just say Paul for the time's sake, so don't kill me too bad. But I just say Paul, he kind of explains to us in Hebrews that like this, um, basically all the types and shadows of the Old Testament all point to Christ. And so even the seventh day or the Sabbath day, was not primarily talking about a um, physical day of rest. It's always been talking about a spiritual rest in Christ. Christ says, come to me all who are labor and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. So true rest is found in Christ. And like, if you go back to the moral law, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, I think it's the Fourth Commandment on your, uh, no, I'm going back, the Fourth Commandment based on Sabbath day. Yeah. So to be in Christ is to really truly fulfill that seventh day. And I think Martin Luther says, you know, on the Sabbath day, that's a day of rest where we rest from all our labors and like our worldly sinful desires and uh, basically experience worship in the church. And our confession also has something about that as well. Yeah, and, talks and, and, about and that's how, what I want to read here um, from the 689 London Baptist Confession. Um, it's going to be chapter 2, 22, uh, section 7. Let me read that. It is the law of nature that, it, that in general, a portion of time specific, specified, I'm sorry, specified by God should be set apart for the worship of God. So by his word in a positive moral and perpetual commandment that obligates everyone in every age, he has specifically appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath 
to be kept holy to him. From the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ, the appointed day was the last day of the week. After, after the resurrection of Christ, it, had, it was changed to the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's Day. This day is to be kept to the end of the age as the Christian Sabbath. Since the observation or observance, I'm sorry, of the last day of the week has been abolished. Hmm. So it gets in that this Lord's day as this eighth day, this new day, that God always had a day of rest. And it doesn't matter how if God wants to change it from the seventh day to the eighth day or to the first day, it's always going to be a day of rest. That's what God established. But what that day was, God could change that day. In the beginning, in Genesis in the Old Testament, it represented the old Sabbath. But now we're going to know now is that God is going to create what a new people. Not only he created a new people, he created a new land. Not only he created a new land, he also created a new day. And so God does this all throughout. He's making everything new. He's making everything new, letting us know that, is that how the newer, in the sense of, is supreme over the older or the latter. Everything else in the Old Testament represents like the, even the seventh day. It was a day of rest. It pointed to a better fulfillment of a better day as Christ is our mm. true fulfillment and Christ, Christ is our new rest. And so we celebrate Christ is our new rest on the day that he was raised from the grave on actually the first day of the week. Which is Sunday. And you look like the early uh, Christians, like, you know, um, even some of John's like disciples, Irenaeus, Athanasius, like all those guys, you know, Christendom. They all would have told you that the Sabbath day was on Sunday. And so, like, it's not by a coincidence that we all today worship on the Sabbath day, which is Sunday. Now, there's many Christians today that will, you know, that will go up and down about you how the, the Sabbath day is on Saturday. But, like, if they would just read the book of Hebrews, Paul tells you that this right here, these types and shadows are all fulfilled in Christ. You've heard some. And so, again. Yeah, sorry about that, KJ. Uh, I've heard some, like, the seven-day Adventists kind of mentioned, like, the, the Catholic Church changed the from the seventh day to the first day, the Catholic Church did these things. And and we know the Catholic Church has done a lot of damage over the years throughout the Reformation, throughout history. If they came out and made an actual declaration that the actual first day of the week is Sunday, um, man, if they done that um, within the Catholic Church, yes, it is the first day of the week. But the, but this didn't originate with the Catholic Church. You know, what, what, you know this didn't originate with them. This was already originated already in the Gospels. Uh, even with, with, with um, um, not even just in the Gospels, but also in Acts, we see they met on the first day. Then also we see in the, in the first century, second century, um, the writings of the, um, um, I think it's called the, the Twelve Apostles. I think that's the name of the writings. I think the second century. Um, the, uh, Didache. Didache. I'm sorry. Yeah, the Didache. Um, they talked about the teachings of the apostles and they talked about the first day of the week as well as they honored the Lord's Day. So all throughout the early church always kept the Lord's Day. So this wasn't new to say the Catholic Church created this. No, they got this from the Bible and the scriptures that they met on the first day of the week. And again, I'm just going to scratch this. I'm probably tired of hearing this, but again, like the commandment was never primarily about a day, but that true fulfillment of that day is found in Christ. Like that true rest is found in Christ, if I'm making sense. And so, you want to kind of go on from there? You want yeah, and go I on to the next part of the verse. Sunday is that even on the seventh day, God was never tired. He's God. He doesn't get tired. And so God didn't need hmm. that day to actually rest upon because he retired from his work. But it's a reflection of his work and what he's done. It was a reflection. Well, now as the Christian church, now we look at it in the sense that um, what Jesus has done, um, Jesus now brings us this new 
day of his new day of rest and what he's done, not because he's tired, but now because what he's done, that everything is finished. All the laws that was connected to the Sabbath, all the things that are Old Testament, all the things are abolished. But now we serve a new day, a first day of the week, and there's no attachment with those. Only thing that keeps us, only thing that we celebrate now is Jesus. We don't have to celebrate keeping all the festival laws and everything else, all the, the ceremony and the civil laws. Now we get to celebrate what Jesus has done in this new day of rest. We don't have to bring anything to the table. Yeah. And so it's so a couple of resources you guys can look at. Um, you can go look at the six. I would prefer you guys <laughs> to look at the um, 689 Learns about the Confession of Faith, chapter 22, like Creston said. I'm sure you guys go to Westminster. You guys look at Martin Luther. Uh, Jonathan Edwards does a wonderful job preaching a sermon over that. I think Charles Spurgeon also has a sermon on that as well. So you have many resources about a lot of giants of the faith preaching what the Bible says, that the Sabbath day is the Lord's day. And that true fulfillment of that day is found in Christ. But I want you to notice right here the next part of the verse, though. So before we get started, my major right now is English, but I haven't told you guys my testimony where I'm located. Right now, I'm currently in college. I'm actually my last semester in college. And I'm an English major. And so something about symbolism, you guys need to understand, because as we go through this book, you're going to see a lot of symbolism. And so how, would, how do we identify symbolism today in literature? We have two terms which are known as similes and metaphors. When you say um, he's as strong as a lion or he's like a lion, you're using similes and metaphors to describe characteristics of somebody, if I'm making sense there. And so John is going to start using this symbolism a lot. You know, right now, but also throughout the rest of the book, after we leave chapters um, two and three. We're basically getting that right now. Let's look at that real quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. John says, I was in the John says in verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write on the scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches Ephesus, Myrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. What are you going to say, though, man? I'm going to read the verse. we, we do get into that that already when you use the word like here. I think the word in Greek is called host. Um, in Greek, um, the word host uh, represents in the sense of um, it's like like or as. Um, it sometimes even be translated that. Um, but right here is comparing to mm-hmm. something else that uh, a marker of, let's uh, say, a weak relationship between events or something. They use it. I think we see the same word in like First Thessalonians 5, 2. Um, the same word, um, very similar um, as that. It says, for yourself know perfectly that the day of the Lord so come as a thief in a light night. So it translates like so come, like so, the word so. Um, it's just very similar, like a thief, the, when the Lord comes. So it's a very, it's trying to draw, it's trying to use it as illustrations to draw to a reality. So these symbolism point to a literal book. So Amil, a lot of times they say with well, idealism that they don't, think the book is actually literal uh, that's not true we think the book is literal but to understand the literal meaning of it we have to understand the illustration the literal meaning of it so like this trumpet he said i heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet so we understand it was a loud voice it was a loud voice right here um and what does this voice come from the verse 11 is going to tell us the voice um uh, but it says like a trumpet letting us know what a trumpet does you know we know what a trumpet does a trumpet is very loud. Yeah. It makes a lot of, in the sense of a vibration. Um, and so the trumpet brings a lot of 
um, noise and things of that nature. So it's going to grab your attention here. So this noise of this trumpet is going to be something that, um, or this voice that he heard, it was loud enough to grab a, a person's attention very, you know, in just in that moment. Yeah, and John's going to do that all throughout the book, actually. So just play close attention. When you see, like, the word like, probably John's using uh, more, keeping when he's comparing something, like here, like a trumpet, you're probably in the midst of symbolism. And so another thing that's kind of cool about the book of Revelation is nine times, out, nine times out of 10, the book itself will tell you what the symbol is. If you play close attention to like the, you know, when it says like or as, this, this, and this, right after that, it'll tell you this is what this means. And so here, like Kristen says, look at the next part. Then I turn in verse 12 to see the voice that was speaking with me. And after turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. So let's talk about that real quick. Seven golden lampstands. Yeah. So um, real quick, can I mention real quick, which somebody said, he said, I heard. Now this is what, it, now he's actually saying, yeah. you know, this is the saying right here, what he heard. Write what you, you see in, 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 in a book and send it to the seven churches. Um, uh, what, what, what verse did you stop at? Verse yeah, I started in 12, because we kind of talked okay, about so the seven churches, but also a verse okay, 11. Okay. Yeah. But that, that's what he heard and everything. He said, write yeah, these down about 12. the seven churches. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, yeah. So Are he, you good? Turned, he said it was speaking to me. In turn, I saw seven golden lampstands. And a lot of times, like I said, somebody can take it and run with that. Oh, man, it's seven golden lampstands, man. It's, this is seven kingdoms of Israel. Or, you know, they can come out and say all types of things and try to say what these <laughs> lampstands are. And, uh, but, um, but we got to be patient. We got to be patient. Instead of trying to decide what it is now, continue reading this. But we know what a lampstand stand does. It, it gives light. It gives light to darkness. Mm -hmm. So it's like whatever this lampstand is, something, whatever it said, turn out, I said seven golden lampstand. So these lamp, this, whatever it is, is giving light to something. You know, it's seven, seven lampstands bringing light in the midst of some type of darkness. Then it said, in the midst of the lampstand. Christ. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Then it said, in the midst go, of the lampstands, but one like a son of man. And when we get this terminology, the son of man, um, that should point us right back to first. We think of the Old Testament, it should point us right back to Daniel. Um, Daniel talks about the yep. son of man quite a bit. Um, uh, and Daniel. Uh, Jesus' favorite no, I said that's Jesus' favorite name to be titled. You look all throughout the Gospels, he loves yeah, to be called uh, Son of Man. Throughout. And I think Mark kind of champion, Mark says it quite a bit. He's the Son of Man. And so the one that's bringing darkness and bringing light, he's Jesus Christ, you know, he's, somebody, he's the light of the world. Well, he is the midst of these lampstands. So you ask yourself a question, though, is that why do you even need lampstands if Jesus is there? He's the one to give light. Why do you even need these lampstands? And let's watch and see how John ties it together. It's going to be wonderful. It's amazing. Then I turn to see the lampstand. Why do these lampstands have light? We're going to learn here shortly. But we know already that Jesus is the one that has true light. So the question right now, why do the what, how does these lampstands get light if Jesus is the true light? Then I also hmm. talking more about the Son of Man. All right. Clothed with the long robe. And they use the word again. It said with the long word and with the golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, 
like white wool again, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flaming fire. His feet were like a burnished bronze, refining furnace. And his voice was like a roar of many waters. Uh, so we see the word host, 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 host. This word like quite a bit. And if I hear one more person say, well, Jesus was black because of this verse right here, I'm going to go crazy. <laughs> um, this verse, <laughs> what was that? Talking about the hair. <laughs> like his yeah, hair, his yeah, hair is like yeah, wool. It, it says like. It didn't say it was. And, and I think he's getting to it. He's trying to describe what is happening here. But it didn't say that, that this is who he really is. It didn't say what well, Jesus' hair is wool. He has hair like wool. I mean, is wool or whatever. He said it's like wool. Um, and it's like, you know, yeah. like Again, a it's So um, that doesn't mean in the sense of his, his feet was black, you know, as he was, you know, dark skinned and things of that nature. Um, that's not what it's trying to, that's not what he's getting at here. And again, like, uh, John's going to tell us exactly what, uh, these symbols and stuff and, mean. And, 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 and not, like, time, like in Daniel 7, 9, you think about white or like wool, you think about white hair wool, it says it's like white. It always represents wisdom. It's also about, hey, this, this, this one right here represents so much wisdom here. Um, like a flame, um, uh, his eyes, it, it says uh, like a flame of fire. Um, it's nothing, it's nothing that he can't see. Um, he sees it all and he comes, he revenges certain things. That, that doesn't mean he got bloodshot eyes. I mean, his red is bloodshot red. Um, that, that's not what it's saying here. <laughs> it points us back to the attributes and the character of God, the character of Jesus, his attributes. That's what it's actually pointing to. Let's look at verse 16. It says, um, in his right hand, he had seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp two edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in his strength. Now, remember, uh, me and Crescent hold the positions of Amil and his story pre mill. Now, you can kind of get in the pickle if you try to like um, to make this book like Genesis, for example, as a narrative and you try to follow it literal as possibly can be. You kind of end up as a heretic because Jesus did not have a literal serve coming out of his mouth. This is symbolism pointing to something. What is it like? Why is John using it? What are you trying to describe? And that's kind of what we see here. Let's uh, look again, verse 16. In his right hand, he had seven stars. We'll talk about those in a little bit. And out of his mouth came a sharp twisted sword, and his face was like the sun shining in the strength. You read yeah, verse 17 um, for a 16, man. It's my shine. I think about Moses. Was it uh, Exodus? Exodus 33, 34, when Moses' yeah. face shined before the Lord. I think this is glory. Uh, like his face was like the sun shining. So John is, you know, what he's hearing right here, John is pointing back to Moses. Just the glory that's upon him. His hair is like wool. It's, it's, it's his wisdom. So this is pointing to the, to the majesty, the supremacy of God. That he is full of wisdom. That, that there's nothing that he cannot see. That he sees all things. He can see. He can see through things, uh, with his uh, wisdom and uh, with his uh, his, his uh, with his character and things of that nature. And so, um, so we, we can keep going. Seventeen. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, as though dead. That's what, that, so that point, let's that, talk that about that real right quick. What is that? Is that he saw the face shining? It sounded like Moses. But Moses saw the burning bush. The glory of God and Moses couldn't even, you know, 
Moses saw the glory of God even in that. But better than that, when Moses was able to go to the mountain and see his glory and everything, how he could not, in a sense, of look at God in his face, like his whole face shine. That's what he's getting at here. This is Exodus all over this book right here, letting us know that the same one shine, the same one that Moses on the mountain before, this is he right here speaking. This is Jesus. Think about this too, like, you know, a little bit, you know, more recent as far as the context, I guess, um, that, you know, the listeners are probably, you know, reading this. Think about Peter. What else did it sound like? Luke, right? When, uh, when they were fishing and they called those fish, Jesus did the same. I mean, Peter did the same thing. He fell at the feet of Jesus saying, get away from me. I'm a sinner man. Go to Isaiah 6. We're in the presence of the divine. And uh, you see the only words in the scriptures mentioned three times back to back that God is holy, holy, holy. And what was the response to a sinner in heaven? Isaiah says, woe is me for I'm a sinner in the midst of unclean people or I have unclean lips as well. And so John, he is in the presence of the divine. He is um, in his, you know, I guess you would say his regular body, his fleshly body. And a little bit, chapters four and five, he'll be actually receiving a vision. And so currently right now, I guess he's in the midst of the divine. And like anytime sin comes into comes in contact with the divine, you see the same thing. People fall, like all throughout the Bible, when angels come, you always see this. People are terrified. Why? Because angels are sinless creatures and they also are holy. But God, he is thrice holy. And so holy, of course, means, again, set apart. And God is set apart from his creation and his creatures. There is none holy like God. That's why he's thrice holy. But here you see, again, this parallel all throughout the Bible when sin comes and it meets kind of like holiness. The same kind of reaction. Yeah, I, I think the spell of feet every single time. I think uh, one one comment I think Vicky said is that um, it's overwhelmed by supernatural glory. When someone, you know, when they hmm. bow, you know, f when they fall at his feet, is overwhelmed with the supernatural glory. And that points back to what I was just saying right there at the end of verse sixteen. His face was like a sun shining. He was glorious. He was so glorious. And again, you know, not, we don't want to disconnect this from the suffering Christian that is happening right now. Is that why, why, why would these words be so encouraging to the saints? Well, listen, looking a little bit more in this verse, said, but he laid his right hand on me. The right hand mm. always represents the strength of the Lord. We see that all throughout um, the Old Testament, um, the right hand of the Lord, the right hand of the Lord. Um, we see that every, I mean, at different places throughout the scriptures. We hear about the right hand of the Lord. And so uh, this is not a um, the first time we heard this word. I think this word is used probably uh, just right hand, probably over 100 sometimes throughout scriptures. Um, just in Psalms itself, um, the right hand of the Lord is uh, used, I think, over 36 times. I'm thinking about Psalm 16, 8. I think it talks about like how he is at my right hand and I shall not be uh, shaken. Um, Psalm 16, verse 11. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Um, the adversaries at your right hand, so you can take refuge at his right hand because of the adversaries. This right hand represents safety. And guess who gets the right hand right here? John. He places the right hand on John. <laughs> and John is letting the people know as he's saying, as he writes this book down, those who are going through suffering, Jesus' right hand is upon John. And Jesus' right hand is on, upon him that John gets all the pleasures in Christ, but also can be afraid of his adversaries. He can take refuge in, in Jesus. So this glory 
He said he got on his knees and he saw the overwhelm of his glory. God now touches him with his right hand, letting them see that, hey, you are mine. Normally, it was an unbelief. They would have melted right there in that spot. But John doesn't melt right here. The Lord Jesus is letting them know that it is peace with you and me now because what I have done for you. It is true peace. And so what I am sharing with you within this letter that a suffering Christian is that you guys can come and stand before my face now. And, and whatever you're going through right now is that this is what you get in the end. You will be able to stand before me and I can put my right hand upon you as well. Hmm. That right there is beautiful, man. That's the gospel, really, man. Again, parallel that with Isaiah, the same kind of vision. A sinner goes to heaven and is in the midst of a holy, divine, and perfect God. And his only response is, woe to me. But if you notice in that text, the same thing happens. An angel comes and touches Isaiah. But, of course, that was symbolized by, you know, it was a literal angel probably did that. But God was showing him the same thing that he's showing John here, that it's okay to be in my presence. But for the unbeliever, it's not okay to be in God's presence because you do not know Jesus Christ. Again, the Bible was for believers. And how do you know Jesus Christ is by trusting in him and turning him. We talked about being in the spirit on the Lord's day. And you only can fulfill that once you know Jesus truly and intimately. But look at verse uh, 17 again. Uh, verse 18, it says, And the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. So our God is a living God. We do not worship a, a dead God. If you look all throughout the Old Testament, Chris mentioned this, I think one of the other, so I think earlier, when he says, I'm the Lord God, anytime uh, Moses was writing that, he was trying to show the people that this is the covenant of God. This is uh, the father, uh, God, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is a living God. This is not a, a idol God or a God that you can make out of a statue. Uh, one of the statues that they made in Old Testament, Ezekiel, was Molech. They will worship this statue and claim to be God and sacrifice their um, newborn babies on this statue and claim that statue of Molech to be God, but this is the one and true living God, yeah, Jesus KJ, Christ himself. Uh, back in 17, he said, fear not. So see, even though he's the living God, a triune God, a powerful God, he's the first, he's the last, we don't have to fear. Does it remind you of something? Um, the word fear is, is the same word that we know um, in, uh, uh, I think it's uh, Fabe, Fabo, uh, Fobo, um, the word we see in Greek, but it's the same word we hear in John 14 when he says that, um, um, do not be troubled. Do right? not be troubled. Um, he said, um, let not, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe in me. Then he goes on again at the end of John 14. He said again, let your not, let your heart not be troubled. Then guess what he says at the end? He said, do not be afraid. It's the same thing he told him in John 14, hmm. the disciple when they was about to go through suffering. He let no, I'm going to get ready to leave you guys. Y'all going to go through trials. Do not be afraid. That's the same language right here. Fear not is the same word. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I put my right hand upon you. And it's so comforting, isn't it? He put his right hand on him and said, do not be afraid. Fear not. You don't have to worry. You don't have to worry. As he revealed this thing, I'm glorious. But you don't have to be afraid in me because we have peace together. But that's why it's so encouraging to be able to see that. But also it's saying that he had the keys of death and of Hades. Man, man, he has the keys. I mean, not Satan. Everybody gets so afraid of Satan, man. Satan can do this. this. He's the one that has the keys. 
And the one that has the key has his right hand upon John. He has his right hand upon the believers. He has the key. This is different than Satan had. He the one that has the key, the one that we have peace with, the one that has reconciled us together. Why are we fearing what man can do, what man try to do to us? Jesus has the keys. They can't do anything to us. We'll see uh, later throughout the book of Revelation, too, um, whether or not it's to be interpreted figuratively or literally. Um, Christ, or he's going to give angels these keys to open up different abyss and, like, you know, different different things, outcomes are going to happen. But you'll see that kind of language used out the book, that the angel is given this key to do this. And so it's kind of cool that Jesus is the one that, or God, is the one that has the key and the power to do these things. No devil and no other angel unless God grants the permission. So God is truly divine. Um, when we say the keys of death in Hades, sometimes yeah, Hades can be yeah. referred to as hell, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes it be hell. And, um, and I mean, so people are in you know, different places. Um, uh, the word can be used, at, um, you know, um, in the Old Testament, they use the word, um, I think the same word in the Septuagint. Um, I thought I'm seeing the Septuagint to use uh, Gehenna in this, uh, or they use that for. Um, I'm trying to see what they use it, Gehenna at sometimes. Uh, for hell, uh, what was that? Probably in Psalms, right? Yeah, yeah. Probably I think in Psalms, right? In there, um, you got me off top right here. I'll think about it here in a second. But the word Hades, like Hades, but for most part, we know it as as hell uh, quite a bit. But he has, you know, for the keys of death, you know, or in hell. So um, the one that has the, the supremacy that can actually determine who dies and whatever who's going to be put away forever is God himself. And so, um, you know, and that's even for the saints, even those who are put to death, but God is those that only way they were put to death is God allowed them to be put to death. And we hear about even though who, who die, they still get robes. They still get to reign supreme with God. So even if we die, that don't mean we, in the sense of God is against us, anything else, you know, God is not for us. God allowed us to happen um, for his own glory, his own purposes. But right here, though, is that God is the one that controlled death, and he also controlled Hades. But KJ, I, I like to, in verse now, just think about said, I am the first and last, and he keeps using I, so I died. I behold, so this first and last again, just let you know, Jesus is truly God. So I am the first and the last, but also we just know this is not the Father because I died. The Father didn't die and the Spirit didn't die. So Jesus is the only one that died within the Trinity. He said, behold, I am alive forevermore. I was died, but I'm raised. So now again, it points that the first and the last, which you're talking about the beginning and the end, uh, or you talk about also the first and the last, um, you know, the Alpha and Omega, it's Jesus himself. Hmm. Think about John, um, was it John 11? When um, I can't remember if Mary and Martha, they came up to Jesus about the death of Lazarus. And Jesus says, if you believe in me, I, I'm butchering, I'm kind of butchering him. I'll paraphrase it. Talks about Jesus told her that I'm the resurrection of life. Yeah. And to the Lazarus, um, kind of encouraging the sister. And so, again, you see kind of what Crescent just said, the only Christ, only God has a power of life and death. And actually, only Christ is the only person that has died and rose again. Didn't that show you how tremendous and powerful your God is that you serve? But let's look at this. Um, 
verse 19 real quick, verse 19 and 20. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and things which are and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Again, I told you guys, the book of Revelation interprets itself. And so now the hard part is understand what the world is y'all talking about, right? Seven angels, what the world <laughs> churches make sense for angels. What are you talking about? And let's kind of deal with that real quick. Yeah. Yeah. Um verse twenty see the word angels, it can be, you know, um the word angel can be translated angelos as messengers, sometimes it's messengers. So these were messengers. Um the seven stars were seven messengers to the seven churches. Um, so what what were these angels? Who were these angels? Uh, so many people have tried to understand and try to see, figure out exactly who exactly these angels are, or the particular angel. Uh, it was some was it some with Gabriel or somebody else? You know who were the actually the actual angels that actually comes here? Um, like I said, one person says the literal messenger here say human teachers. It can be we can see that in um, Malachi two seven uh, in churches. So um, not heavenly beings. Some people say. That these was messengers to these churches, these seven messengers that actually were sent to these churches to care for these churches. Um, KJ, is, is it where do you stand with this or historical pre mill guys? Where do they stand with this? Or is, is it diversity? Uh, are they, what angels are these or do you, were these just messengers as uh humans or someone the Lord sent to these churches? Now, there is certainly some diversity in this text. I mean, just looking at this, like you kind of you kind of see that yourself. But um, John Gill, he has a commentary. And so let me kind of bring about what he says in his commentary. He was also a historic pre-mill guy. Again, he's also a former Baptist. So definitely look at his commentary, say, guys. <laughs> <laughs> they get you some brownie points. And, uh, and as you look for that, KJ, I can go ahead and read this while you're looking for it. Um, this is one commentary. One okay. person says this is that. On the seven, um, the angels of the seven church, well, might be human messengers, human pastors, or literal angels sent as messengers, but they are probably personification of each church identity. So, they're saying is that it probably like each church identity, hmm. the angels represent the messenger. Each church was like a particular messenger. That's what one person says. Some say it might have been pastors that were sent to these churches to care for these churches. Uh, so it's a lot of diversity of who these angels, um, what what is the messengers were, but we know also that all the messengers of the Lord, they were actually relay the message of the Lord, so they won't come bring no other message. So these people right here will bring the messages of the Lord, whoever they are. Yes, and uh, John Gill's commentary again, Reformed Baptist guy, he says this about the angels. Angels, uh, but likewise angels, which signifies messengers as ministers are sent for by Christ with the message of the gospel to publish to the sons of men. And as the angels of Christ minister in spirit, so are these preachers of the gospel, the ministers of Christ. And so he's kind of saying that these angels here we see are probably yeah, so the pastors get the of word, churches. You know, it's not that, you know, somebody's misinterpreting the text and things like that, but the word is angelos. It means messenger. That's what the word really means. And so when these come, when these translators try to write these things down, um, a lot of they probably put some interpretation in it, put the word angel in there. You think about heavenly beings, but it's just a messenger. But what kind of messenger it is? Um, like I said, I will lean more towards the Lord sending, like I say, a pastor or someone there to minister the word to them to those churches.
I mean, that makes more sense. I mean, like, again, like the Bible is complete. And so like, it's very rare that we need any kind of signs. Like you think about the angels in general, they came to the people of God to like deliver messages, you know, from God, but now the Bible is complete. And at that time period, Revelation was the last book of the Bible. Like even still, we didn't need any more angels because Christ has already died. He already has apostles. The Holy Spirit is already, you know, living inside as believers. And so there's no need for any angels physically to do, do anything. Now, of course, angels day and day serve God. But that's kind of dumb, man. So, and it goes back to the seven stars. Before we close, back, we, got uh, we just read that in verse, um, in verse 16, in his right hand, he held the seven stars. And that made sense, though, is that if these are pastors or messengers, they are messengers for the Lord, and they're in his right hand, and he has given them everything to teach and give to the church. Every time a pastor would give a word to the church in his early church, they would be messengers of the Lord, and so, uh, and they would be in his right hand. Like, he would be guiding them. And we see that with the apostles throughout the ministry, the Lord would guide them with his right hand throughout the entire ministry. And so, uh, so this right hand is that these messengers, they're in his right hand, so they're not teaching anything false. They're not saying anything that was, you know, that's not in God's word because it was God about God's right hand, his strong hand that represents his strength. That's anthropomorphic language. God doesn't have an actual hand, but it represents in a sense so we can understand as humans, God uses his right hand to show his strength. So, but it ends it off right here at the end of this. Um, what does it say right here in the last few words in this um, chapter? Yes, it says, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches, and so we kind of see the seven. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. Again, those seven churches are seen in verse eleven, and we'll kind of pick this back up next week as well in chapter two. And so, the reason why John Lee kind of ends up on these seven churches is because now and, and can, he's going to start talking about these and, seven churches. Can I make another? And point so next too? week, that's kind of what we'll pick up at. Uh, go, going back to uh, yeah, go ahead, man. I think that was verse uh, when he talked about the lampstands in verse thirteen. We said a lampstand getting off light. Um, and he said, why do we even need another light? If Jesus is in the midst of them, why do you need another light? Well, it's another light because Jesus gave the church the light. The church is actually to be also a light to the world. The church should be a light, a beacon of a light. Now, as Christians, we are to be a light to the world. And so we are smaller light, but Jesus the one that tells us right now in the midst of them, it was Jesus in the midst of them. The one with the true radiant light, we also are a light as well as we are to give the message of Jesus Christ to the ends of the world. We are to give light to the world in the midst of a dark, fallen world. The church is considered to be the light of lampstands because they have the word of Jesus Christ to give, bring life in the midst of darkness to a world that is totally against the word of God. probably why Jesus cares so much about his church. If you guys remember when Paul was persecuting, or Saul at the time was persecuting the church, Jesus didn't say, why are you persecuting my church? He says, why are you persecuting me? Because Jesus represented it within his church. And so even the title of a Christian, we are like mirroring who Christ was in his ministry. And so it was a wonderful experience to be a Christian, to be like Christ, to do what we're supposed to do. You know, you know one of the questions, what's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy forever. And the only way a person can truly do that is by knowing Jesus personally. Yeah. One of you the last words, words though, man, we get out of here. Those who are suffering, going through trials. You look at this test right here. Normally in the Old Testament, in the temple, 
the lampstands and everything will be outside the rooms of the holy of holy. The rooms of the holy of the holy where God would dwell with his people. But now it said Jesus now is in the midst of the lampstand. He is in the midst of his churches. Now the churches and everything, at first we wouldn't be able to go to the rooms of the holy holy, but Jesus has come to us. He dwells with us. Now we have access to him as we are all priests of God. And so by doing this, now Jesus are in the midst of his churches, in the midst of these lampstands. Now Jesus can truly care for his church. No matter what trouble, trials you're going through, Jesus is in the midst of his churches. He is in the sense of walking with the churches daily. And as the priest tended to the lampstand, now as us, Jesus attends to us now as a glorious, better temple. As we have made us now, our bodies a temple of God. Now we are able to meet with God now forevermore as he walked with us every single day and the spirit of God dwells in us. Hey, we may we might need to go ahead and drop our commentary set, man. We can get um we can get verses nine through twenty and uh one it, hour. We can go and drop the commentary set. Hey, I enjoyed it, man. I enjoyed it. <laughs> hey, no problem, guys. So we come back next Tuesday, like always. That's the day that these episodes will be published. Um, but we're talking about these seven churches. And so definitely feel encouraged. My encouragement always is that for those who are not near to Christ. And that you would do exactly what Christ says. Come to me, all who ever laid, and I give you rest. True rest is only found in Christ. And so, throughout this book, you will see kind of something similar for those who conquer to the end, but those who conquer to the end. And this book is for Christians. So, if you're not in Christ, you would not conquer to the end. Actually, Christ will conquer you. And so, I would just encourage you to not only read this book, but also to draw into Christ. And so, right, let's come back next Tuesday, man. Thank you, Christian.